Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we talk about investing. We talk about being mindful about your money. We talk about investing your values and voting with your money. Voting your values with your money. Yeah. Which, um, which is really the thing that's getting me interested in this whole investing shebang. I mean, basically, to, to recap, um, Danielle is a is it a, a lawyer um, who, and, you know, and my daughter and and someone who is discovering that maybe learning how to invest is a good idea in spite of the fact that her father does it. <laughs> That's the best short elevator pitch I ever heard. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's exactly what we're doing here. <laughs> I am naturally disinclined and I'm becoming more inclined through information and knowledge. It's like when you grow up on a farm, <laughs> you don't want to be a farmer. No. It's just how it works. Or, or you like desperately want to. It's one or the other. Yeah, one or the other. So <laughs> we're, we're really just going on. We've been at it a year now um, of just dealing with all the, the really critical principles of investing that I've learned as a, as a student of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and other investors in, in what are, are, is known as kind of value investing, I guess. But we call it rule one investing from Warren Buffett's idea that there really is a focus that you have to have as an investor. And if you don't have it, you're not an investor, you're a speculator. And that focus is on not losing money, on not having your capital disappear. It's not about the ups and downs in the stock market. People get that mis mistake that all the time. They mistake uh, value investing for just having like non-volatility. Yeah, kind of. A, or, or the the basic notion that rule one comes from is Buffett said there are two rules of investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And he's very emphatically not talking about the ups and downs of the stock market. He's talking about, you know, the kind of investing you do as a real estate investor, where you buy a piece of real estate and long term, you're very confident it's going to be worth more than what you paid for it. And you're not worried about the day-to-day -day ups and downs of real estate prices. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully you get some cash flow in the meantime from renting it out. Well, most definitely that's that's a criteria for a good investment. So we're going to take the radical point of view, I think, and it's very radical if you really think about it. Um, I'm trying to convince Danielle about this. This radical point of view that if you invest in something, it means by definition that it is an asset that produces cash flow. And that, yeah, that's what we were talking about last time, this thing called an equity bond. Yeah, exactly. And that, and, that you, it, and that you must, in order to invest in it, you must understand the investment. And so by definition, people who invest in exchange-traded funds, market uh, indexes, mutual funds, and broad market mutual funds are by definition speculators, in my definition. That is, it's not investing to put your money in the stock market long term uh, and just hope it goes up. That's just as, it's not as virulent a form of speculating as going to the, the racetrack, but it is still speculating because you don't know what you're putting your money into. You don't know what I you're just, doing. I just couldn't disagree more because I think they know exactly, okay, let's assume that person number one knows exactly as much as Phil Town and has researched just as much as Philtown. And instead of choosing an individual company, they choose to buy an index because they think they see a trajectory 
they think they see an economic forecast. They have the numbers they like. They have, let's say, they're voting their values with their money by choosing the index. I think they can invest by choosing the index. I don't think it's necessarily as good of an option as choosing an individual company. But I do not think if you're somebody who has an outlook and a viewpoint and reasons for making that investment, I do not think they're speculating. The well, same way you are not speculating. Well, I will say you have Warren Buffett on your side. Oh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and probably Charlie Munger. And so I'm, if I were to sit down with the four of us, I would be three on one and I would lose. So uh, I, I, know that I, I know that I, I'm, I'm in a, in a weak, it, I'm, I'm in an unpopular position. I wouldn't say it's weak. What I would say is that the reason Warren and Charlie are encouraging people to buy exchange traded funds or broad market indexes um, if they don't know how to invest, is because those guys are both real strong believers <clears throat> in the future of America, that they've seen over their you know years of life that America's gone through depressions and world wars and inflation and deflation. And at the end of the day, the person that put their money into the market long term came out better than any other kind of investment that you can do. Better than real estate, better than bonds, better than anything over the last 100 years you would have done the best in the market. But that's well, because I'll, America I'll is growing. I'll make the counterpoint to your point, which is that if you had invested in individual companies like Warren Buffett does, you would have actually done better than the market. You would have, you would have if, been stunned. If you, of course, caveat, if you chose the right company, sure. obviously. Sure. But of all the investments you could have put your money in, and, and which you would call like a passive investment, you just hands off, put the money in passive investment. Right, right. For the last hundred years of America have been a stunning uh, result for stockholders, stock shareholders in the broad, in the broad market have done extremely well. Even though there's been some really violent ups and downs. For example, you would have had to hold on to stocks in the depression, and you know that meant you would have been you would have lost ninety percent of your money over a short period of time, mark to market. Um, Buffett wouldn't say you'd lost the money, but you know people feel like they've lost the money. And, um, you know, but eventually 25 years later, it came back and you got your money back and then it went up like crazy. So, you know, you, if you believe in America and you believe in the, you know, the, the long term power of capitalism, then, you know, putting your money into the stock market is one of the least risky bets you can make. <clears throat> but my view is it's still a bet. Well, you need to have also enough time for that bet to pay off. Indeed, you do. And as we just said, if you put your money into the stock market in 1929, you broke even in 1955. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. not counting dividends. But so, you know, it's it's uh, I think it's an argument you can have. Um, but I'm just going to be real hardcore about it and say that in my view, an investor is putting money into one. Number one, something you really understand. Number two, has some sort of durable protection that will make you money for a long, long time, and you know what that is. Number three, it's got management that has integrity and talent. Um, I used to think uh, until uh, recently that that was a that was a just a uh, an optional thing. I now well, think Charlie, it's absolutely critical. Charlie Munger says it's optional, but I I agree with you, and I disagree with him. I I don't like the idea. Well, it, so what he says, it, and or maybe Warren Buffett says this that you should choose a company expecting idiots to run it at some point, something like that. Yeah. And um, 
because at some point they will, like an idiot will run it at some point. Yeah. And I think that that's a good point. If you are expecting to hold a company for 10 to 20 years, you can't predict where that company's going to go exactly and who's going to run it. So you've got to have some sort of, you've got to have a company that's strong enough that it can withstand some bad management for a couple of years. I think that's the point that he's making. It's strong enough in a, in a very important sense, and that is that it has this durable competitive advantage that allows it to keep its margins up even while somebody is running it into the dirt. And I'm, I'm discovering that there are, you know, you just keep learning as you go. That's one of the fun things about investing. And one of the <clears throat> one of the challenges is that you always learn something, you know, as you go forward. Recently, I put money into a company like a couple of years ago. We'll talk more about this at some point in time. But it turns out, you know, that management, um, it appears, didn't keep us as informed as we should have been as uh, owners of the business. And as a result, we were still putting money to this company when they were deep trouble and, and, and we didn't know it. Um, and, and they managed to destroy an enormous amount of, of value in the company by their actions that turned out to be fairly stupid and perhaps even unprincipled. So um, I now have, you know, managed, I've just been fortunate over the years, invested in a lot of good managers. And when you get a bad one, you can really get burned. And I, and I, so I'm, that's now no longer optional for me. And then you want a margin of safety. You want to buy it on sale. If you have those things, you're not speculating. You are, you are investing. And if you don't have those things, you are speculating. And I think it's fair to say that people do not have those four things when it comes to putting money in the broad market. And therefore, even no, though... No, by definition, you cannot. Yeah, by definition. So look, at, let's, let's, let's dive into valuation again. We've been promising we're going to get at it. And I really, really, over these next two podcasts, I want to wrap up valuation. <laughs> That's a sign that it's going to take us 10 podcasts. Anytime we say anything like that. But here's the point. We are going to go through valuation from A to Z, yes. from 1 to 10, from start to finish. Yes, we, we are. We are not finishing this until we are done. And I understand how to value a company. Yes. That's what's happening here. So this so, is going to take some time. Just bear with us. It, you well, need to know I this mean, if you're yeah, going to Yeah, you need invest. to know this. It's not fun. I'm, I'm trying to like enjoy it as much as I can and just get the information. Um, but I, I don't particularly enjoy it naturally. So my goal here is just like back in algebra class in high school. My goal here is to find out what the formula is so that I can apply it because I can do that. And, and the scariest thing, Danielle, that I, and I have to be, I have to, be, you know, full disclosure here that if there was a simple formula that you I, could count on, we would all be doing it. <laughs> every moron out there would be able to exactly. buy companies on sale. So it's it's not going to be as black and white as I would wish it to be. Um, and I will start this off by saying there are an awful lot of businesses that you 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 sim I simply can't figure out the value of them. Um, you know. There's there are tremendous professors, I mean, brilliant professors at NYU who have written the books on valuation. Um, I'm going to mispronounce this guy's name, but I think his name is David Devorian or Devor, Devor <laughs> I don't know. Look him up. NYU professor David Devorian is something. So <laughs> it, but I'm not going to encourage you to read his books because they're for professionals who have to put a value on something for the court. Right. They've they've somebody's got to say what this thing is worth. And so there's these incredibly uh, sophisticated valuation techniques that they're useless to a small investor. 
So what we're going to do is focus on the very, very most basic kinds of valuation. We're going to look at it two or three different ways, and we're going to look at it um, in terms of a, of a simple company, a lemonade stand company, very, very simple. Uh, apparently, this lemonade stand has some sort of corner on the market because it has a big, durable competitive advantage. Oh my which gosh. I'm not even going to specify. The best location. It's the best lemonade. It's yeah. the best customer service. Yep. The best branding a lemonade stand has ever seen. The city of small town USA has given them the only license for lemonade standing. That Ooh, that's a have. good one. Yeah. Wait, which one? Is, that's a. What, what Toll Bridge. Toll Bridge. I knew there was some cute little thing I was supposed to remember. A virtual Toll monopoly. Bridge. So we're going to be able to count on these numbers very, very well. And um, if you recall, the numbers are that the company is growing. Um, their sales have been growing. Their earnings have been growing. And we have the numbers. And we'll post them up on the, on the website. Um, the sales growth is 13%. Earnings are growing at 13%. Free cash flow is growing at 15%. And book value is growing at 20%. And those things are all things you can go look up on Google. You can find out what sales are, what earnings are. Uh, free cash flow and book value. Yeah, so it's so nice. If you literally, if you type it in, like with a company name and you type in earnings growth rate, or I'm sorry, if you type in earnings, it'll give you the most recent year of earnings. And then you have to figure out the earnings growth yep. rate. Yep, exactly. Um, so we'll put some definitions up on the on the site for you when you go to it at investedpodcast.com. Um, is that our, is that our URL? That's, yeah, that's our <laughs> website. Good job. Thank you. We've been doing this only a year now. Uh, <laughs> We're into the second year now. We're on podcast 53 and um, everything's gone out the window. We're Didn't we say we've been doing this two years now? Hey, we've been doing this two years. <laughs> cool. So yeah, we'll, we'll put up definitions for you on, on what sales growth rate, earnings growth rate, free cash flow growth rate, and book value growth rate are. Uh, By the way, as long as they're going to our website, I know you wanted to mention something that's on the website. Oh, yeah. We can find out about for your, uh, your investing info. Yeah, we've decided to open up um, our workshop that I do once a month out in Atlanta um, to our podcast listeners for free. So if you go to um, investedpodcast.com, it'll take you to our, our broader website, which is called Rule One Investing, where we have a lot of tools and so on. And, and there'll be a button there. Just click that button and it'll get you into the scholarship uh, program to come for three days. We don't sell anything at this workshop. We ab I mean, I mean it like we really do not sell. Danielle, you've been there. I have been there. I literally expected there to be a sale by the end of the workshop. And people kept coming up to me and saying, when is the sale going to happen? And I was like, I don't know. And then it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, the other shoe never drops. And we have a great time with this because everyone expects that you have to sell something at a free workshop. So we're not selling anything. We're absolutely going to deliver a fabulous education for three days deep into this stuff. And you guys will do it hands on with me. I teach it myself along with 30 volunteer coaches that have been students for a long time. So come on out. We, we do it once a month and just punch the button and we'd love to have you. Yeah, we'll um, talk about a, it more when we have more time, maybe after the valuation thing. And I'll, I'll say what uh, what my impressions were about the workshop. Yep. And we cut this off. You know, every month we only have a certain number of space at the at the hotel we use where we have a ballroom and that's where we do it. So first come, first serve. Um, okay. Let's go. So investedpodcast.com. Check it out. Right on. Um, so lemonade stand. So then we talked about our year one and year two growth rates. Do we need to go over those again? 
Um, no, I'm just going to say, I'm going to just stipulate the growth rates long term for this company are growing at those rates 13% for sales. Okay. Earnings 13. So if you guys want to go back and, and you miss the one where we talked about the numbers that went into those growth rates, just um, yep. just go back to so, the So here are the basics before you can value a business. You have to be capable of understanding that business and you have to have done your homework, dug into it deeply. And, and yeah, obviously, you don't have to dig into it deeply to do a cursory valuation. But before you buy it, you really have to know what you're buying. Just like you'd have to know how to run a subway if you're going to buy that franchise. You, you can't just go own a franchise at Subway and not know how to run the business. Same thing here. You're, you're owning a business. And I want you to take it real seriously, Danielle Marie, that you are owning this business and you need to understand it well enough to own it. So um, that's all. We're all assuming that's done. You've done the work. You've got a great management team who are talented and have integrity. Um, and this business has a big moat of some sort, like we said, toll bridge or something. And now we can put a value on it. We think. Yeah. Okay. So how would we do that? And let me well, just add one more thing here, because I've been thinking about whether, and I, I'm not really sure how much time it's going to take me to put a value on a company. So we'll find that out. But uh, whether it's worth putting the time in to figure it out, like straight away on a company, like maybe you flip those four characteristics and you do the price first to see if it's even worth researching the rest of the stuff. Um, and what I've decided is that actually those four are in the right order. And the reason why is that this kind of investing, it, you, you have to have a good price. You have to have a margin of safety price. But if you don't, then you've done the research and you know that this is a company you really like and you put it on your list and you just watch it because it's not... The only, this particular characteristic is not going to tell you whether or not you like the company. That's what I've realized. This particular characteristic is only going to determine the timing of when you buy the company. And so that's why I think it's actually worthwhile to delve into the understanding the business, the intrinsic characteristics and the management before I get to the price. So I'm just adding that as a note because it's something I've been thinking about as far as structuring my time. And I think probably a lot of other people are thinking about that, too. And that, that's where I come down on it. Well, it's, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's really tempting to just run a valuation and kind of see where you are and then ignore the thing if it doesn't, oh, if it's not it on sale. It is so tempting. Yep. And I, I'm not going to lie. I definitely do that. I'm not going to lie. I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. But best practices is the other way around. Exactly. You're 100% right. And I mean, it's, it's hard not to take a peek under the hood, right? I mean, you're like, okay, is it on sale? But you, right, you can't just stop there. Yep. What you're saying is a really important thing, and that is you want to create a watch list of companies that you understand and that you like and you'd love to buy them um, because Mr. Market will, and this is guaranteed, Mr. Market will one day put that business on sale because the market has these natural fluctuations over time that absolutely crush the stock market or make it stupidly overpriced. And the and so if you know, if you have a list of 10 companies that you love and you know they're great companies and you're keeping up with them, you know, within a few years, the market will go into a bear market where the, val the, the price of the market will drop over 25% and you will have an opportunity to buy virtually every company out there on sale in some way or another if you know the value. So, um, and by the way, these fluctuations to bear markets occur with enormous regularity 
in a range of one, you know, typically in the range of five or six years, there's a bear market. It can be as long as eight or nine, um, occasionally even 10 years. Which is a really long time when you're sitting there with your bank account and you're doing your little diligent rule one investing research every week. Yep. And, all, and then you sit there for eight years. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's that's really frustrating. But of course, really you wouldn't hard. be sitting there for eight years because that's the bottom of the trough and uh, you'd be buying year one. So there's a there's a period of time, maybe 10 to 15 months when the market is on sale. And um, and then when it comes out of that, it's not, you know, eight years from the peak. It's it's then maybe another four or five years to the trough mm -hmm. again. And um, that is still a long time. And we've got some ways of investing in the meantime that might be how you want to use your money. But we haven't talked about those yet. Yeah. And just another thing on sort of following the prices, just because I've been doing this this week, um, I got really excited about Volkswagen because Volkswagen, as I'm sure everybody knows, had a major event uh, last year when it was discovered that they've been faking their emissions testing. And I thought, oh, maybe so Volkswagen owns the Porsche brand. And I enjoy Porsches. And I thought, oh, like a totally emotionally, I would love to own Porsche. Like that's a, that's a company I can really get behind. So I've been researching Volkswagen and getting super excited about it. And um, entirely because of the pricing thing. But um, unfortunately, I have discovered that in my personal opinion, their management has not been doing a great job for a long time. So I'm out. No Volkswagen for me. And... And that that's just an example of one where I was like entirely started with the pricing and ended up with the wrong end of the stick. Now, by the way, on that, sometimes when a company discovers that as management team, the owners actually discover the management team is really corrupt. Um, and I'm not saying these guys are because I don't want to be sued, <laughs> but I'm just saying as an example, um, then the owners will finally step up if there are strong owners in this in this company. And I'm not 100% positive, but I think that Porsche actually owns Volkswagen more than the other way around. That um, that the guys who run Porsche are actually big, big shareholders in Volkswagen. And um, they are replacing management. And probably they're going to have a born-again management team. They did replace the, the technical managers, the CEO and I think somebody else. But it's still owned by the same structure and the board of directors is still the same structure, mm -hmm. which is, it's something, you're right, it's something like half is owned by a family office. And I, that might be the uh, related to the Porsche family, I think it is. Yeah. And, then, and then something like half of what, like a quarter is owned by um, the union, or I think it's the board. I should have done my research better on this before reporting on it to you guys. But basically, the board, I think, is made up by a certain number of union members. Hmm. And then the remaining part is owned by the German government. It's a really odd system. And there are certain German laws that cause it to be that way. And they can't change it. So that's the problem, structurally, that Volkswagen has. Um, yeah, it's been interesting to read. And it's especially interesting to read about how like foreign companies are structured differently than American companies. And I've been looking at their annual reports and they're structured very differently because they're not traded on an American stock exchange. So they don't have to follow our SEC rules like any any companies traded on the U.S. stock exchange. So 
their annual reports are just structured very differently. So that's been an education for me as well, which has been interesting. Well, make a note because we're going to come back on boards of directors here as we go yes, down the road. One of my favorite integrity. topics as an attorney. Yeah, bet. I love talking about boards. Talk I think about they're it. fascinating. A forever income is to deal with boards of directors. So we'll come back on that. But let's dive in into uh, the first step of valuation, which we started talking about last okay. time, okay. Um, which is this idea of looking at a business as an equity bond. And okay. as an equity bond, we can we can really make a quick valuation. You just think about a bond. Um, the bond has a yield on it, right, which is the uh, rate of return you're going to get. And so if you put up $100,000 and the yield on the bond is 5%, then you know you're getting $5,000 a year. Straight up. Okay. Got it. All right. So when we're looking at a an equity bond uh, way of valuing a business, then what we're going to say is, um, what price would we pay in order to get the yield that we want in this business? So we're going to we're going to demand a certain set a certain level of yield here, and the yield that we're going to demand is going to be ten percent. So if this was a bond. With a hundred thousand bucks, okay, do the math, and we have a ten percent yield, we'd be getting how much a year? Ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars, perfect. So we can figure this lots of different ways. We can also say, well, if we're getting ten thousand dollars a year, in terms of cash flow, then how much am I willing to pay for this company? Um, and we would just simply reverse the math and say, well, I need a ten percent yield on this ten thousand dollars. So I'm going to divide the $10,000 by 10%, and that tells me I can pay $100,000 for this company. So we okay. just switch the math We around. talked earlier, a couple episodes ago, about why 10% is the number. So Yep, go you can go back to those and, and take a look. But now 10% also reflects either a suboptimal uh, business, that is something that's going to be made much better, and therefore the 10% yield will grow, or... It's a really good business and it's growing already, in which case we're getting a, a, a really good deal and the 10% will grow. So if we were to look at our lemonade stand, we have these four numbers that we have to understand, right? We've got earnings per share of $11. Um, we've got, we're going to, actually, I'm going to boil it down to these two numbers. Earnings per share of $11 and free cash flow per share of $8. So those two numbers are the, the key numbers after this business has been going for a while on our lemonade stand. Wait a second. Did, did we have those numbers before? I'm looking back. Yeah, at a long time ago. We did. Okay. Yeah. So you haven't changed the numbers. Nope. Okay. So Can we you got say earnings, those one more time for me? Yeah. Earnings are 11 per this share. This is just $11. This is not a growth rate. Right. $11. $11. And free cash flow is $8. Free cash, I'm writing this down. Free cash flow, eight bucks. Okay. Yep. All right. So let's just be sure everybody knows. Is that the eight dollars per share also on yeah. free cash flow? Eight dollars per share. Okay. And so the difference between earnings and free cash flow is the difference between two different kinds of accounting systems. The the earnings are in what's called an accrual accounting system where you're allowed to take in as um, as sales you know, whatever you sold, even if you didn't get paid for it. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is you have all these nice sales and you have all these nice earnings, but you may not have the cash in the bank. And companies with actually decent earnings have gone broke because they didn't have any cash. So when we're looking at 
an investment, we're going to look at it not so much from the point of view of earnings as the point of view of cash flow. And cash flow is tracked based on first uh, putting in just those things which have actually putting in uh, taking the earnings of the company and then subtracting out only those things which um, excuse me, I'm saying this backwards, taking the earnings of the company and then adding back in all of those things that you didn't actually have to spend any money uh, as an expense. So for example, the depreciation of your assets is something you don't have to spend money on. And so we're going to oh, add that back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, okay. we add but it's back also, in it's, Doesn't things. it also reflect, um, and I don't know what it's called, but the other way to do accounting with income rather than accrual and... It's and cash accounting. It's called cash accounting? Yeah. Okay, so rather than like when you put out a bill and the person hasn't paid that bill yet, in accrual accounting, you still act as though and you put on your books as though they have paid that bill already. Right. That's why accrual accounting is kind of weird. Right. But cash accounting, you would show that that bill has not been paid. Right. Even though right. you've done the work or you've provided the lemonade. Right, exactly. So we don't care so much about accrual accounting when it comes to putting money in our pocket. What we care about a lot is the cash flow. And that's important because if we're buying private companies, that's what we're going to end up with is, is that cash flow. And if we're buying public companies, that's how we're going to value the business mostly. So we really want and to I know like what how you, that is. I like how you look at both of them because accrual accounting is used by I would say every public company probably it is, yeah. because it's important for the business to know what they have coming in right. and, and the business should reflect that. So, right. but I like to use both because it really gives a better perspective on, on reality versus future. Yep. And that's really um, generally accepted accounting principles require that you as a public company produce both documents, the, the profit and loss, which is accrual accounting and the cash flow statement, which is cash accounting. And so we're going to be real focused on cash accounting here because that's how an equity bond should work. A bond should produce cash into your pocket. And that's the yield that you're going to get on the money that you invested. So we want our, our little lemonade stand to tell us how much money it's producing in cash flow so that we can figure out this yield. And since we know that free cash flow is really the earnings of the company and then you add back in everything that's a non-cash thing, and in all in total simplicity here, and you end up with what's called operating cash flow, and every public company produces that number operating cash flow. It's a line one third of the way down on the cash flow statement for every public company. It's bold usually, and it says operating cash flow or cash flow from operations. So we're going to start with that number. When you say free cash flow, what you actually mean is operating cash flow. No, I'm oh. getting to free cash flow. So I'm deriving free cash flow in a public company. So let's say that operating cash in our um, in our lemonade stand, operating cash, we haven't given you this number before, operating cash flow on the lemonade stand is, let's say, $11. It happens to be the same as earnings. Okay. All right. So that's our operating cash. That's what we actually have in the bank, kind of, at least in terms of gap accounting. Now, <clears throat> we have another category of expenditures. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm just going to interrupt <clears throat> you. Sure. I'm going back to my, my lemonade stand 
dollar numbers, mm-hmm. and we did have an operating cash number of six dollars. So what I have under cash flow is top line is net earnings, which is $6. Operating cash is $6. Purchase of property and equipment was $2. So we have a free cash flow, which I have in parentheses, not on cash flow statement of $4. Very good. And that's where we started. And then we grew it. We grew it from there. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to go out to the numbers in the future here where net earnings has grown from 6 to 11. And we're just going to say operating cash. I'm glad to hear we did cover it. Operating cash has also grown from 6 to 11. And now we get to these expenditures, which in gap accounting cannot be just deducted from your income, called purchase of property and equipment. Now, around the world, everybody calls this capital expenditures. Capital expenditures, which means stuff that you can't write off immediately like trucks and and warehouses and equipment that you're building you're using to manufacture cars or whatever. So in the in the cash flow statement it's called PP&E or purchase of property and equipment. And we started off in our lemonade stand with $2 and it's grown to $3 now. So every year we're spending at least last year we spent $3 on purchase of property and equipment. So we're going to subtract that from our $11 of operating cash. And what we get is the re- the result of that is called free cash flow. Of eight bucks. Of eight bucks. Now, this, this is money that we can use to grow the company or it's money that I can just put in my pocket. Um, and, and, and this is um, available to me similarly to the way that yield on a bond would be available to a bondholder at the end of the year. They're going to get paid by the federal government a certain amount of money on your treasury bond, and we're going to just say that that's free cash flow. So you're going to get that. Now, in this case, we're getting $8 from our lemonade stand. Now, we know that we want a minimum yield on our free cash flow for our bond of 10%. So now I can figure out how much I can pay for this lemonade stand based on it as an equity bond as an equity bond investment. We want 10% on our free cash flow. That's the number we want 10% on. That's right. Okay. So if it's a a real U.S. Treasury bond and it's paying 5%, you know, you'd be getting $5,000, okay? Now, if that happened to be a company, we would insist on a 10% yield. So, you know, we're going to only pay $50,000 for that bond. Well, here we have a bond an equity bond that's producing free cash flow of $8 per share. And now we know what it's worth because we simply divide that $8 by 10% and it tells us we can pay $80 for that equity bond. If we pay $80 for it, then we're getting, we know if we pay $80, last year we would have gotten $8 and we'd have a 10% yield. So if we paid $80 for one share, we're yep. just sticking with one share, not a whole company right. valuation right. or anything. I like that. That's simple. Um, we can pay 80 bucks. 80 bucks for it. Okay. All right. So that's our first view of value of this company. Oh my gosh, I totally get it. It's simple. <laughs> now, what's really beautiful about this is this is also how people value real estate. And so we're all very familiar with real estate. You go out and you buy a house that you intend to rent, 
And, you know, down the road here in, in rural Georgia, you could buy a house for $100,000 and you could rent that house for some amount of money, right? And, and when you do, let's say you rent that house for, um, let's say, $12,000 a month. All right with me? Yeah. Okay. So you'd have $12,000 that would come in, but that's not your money to put in your pocket. That's not free cash flow. No, because you probably have expenses. Exactly. So you have to maintain the house. You got to you got to have a fund there to repaint the house and put on a roof. You, you know, you got annual expenses for air conditioning, heating, right? You, if you change tenants, you got to paint the inside. So let's just say that it's two thousand dollars a year on average to maintain the house. Now, what else do you have to do? Um, pay taxes. Yep, you got taxes that you got to pay. Let's call that a thousand dollars a year. Do you have a mortgage? Uh, no, your mortgage doesn't count in this calculation. Okay. Because that's just leverage. That's depend. That's sort of a financial uh, structure. It doesn't really affect the value of the business. And what we're looking for is the value. So we're not going to count mortgages in here. We're just Sometimes looking there at are the, fees on mortgages. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, but we're just going to say, okay, we're, we're, gonna say, we're just going to say if we paid it for Get it. Yeah, we're just as if we paid so cash. much money. We just paid cash. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so that we can compare apples to apples. And we don't want to, you know, have financial structure to determine the value of the business for us. We want to value it just as a business, period. Okay. So we're not going to include leverage. So we've got $1,000 of taxes. We also have to insure the business. Oh, that's right. Insurance. So we got or insure this property. So we got a thousand dollars there. So we have maintenance, taxes, insurance. Um, if we have any management uh, fees, we've got to put those in there. Um, so let's say there's a thousand dollars for management, whatever. And that totals five thousand dollars of expenses. And that would include everything, um, including putting on a new roof, which would be part of purchase of property and equipment and just your annual expenses like taxes and insurance. So if we have $12,000 of income and we have $5,000 of expenses, that leaves us with $7,000 of free cash flow. That's our free cash flow. Now, how much do we want to pay for that? 70,000. Exactly. So we, we paid too much. Because we paid 100, right? If, for us, it's not worth 100. Got it. We want to buy it for 70. Okay, so we want to wait for that baby to go on sale. Now, of course, the problem with real estate is that real estate only goes on sale when there's some huge financial crisis in the economy someplace or an entire town is going down like Detroit or Buffalo or something like that where they're having terrible problems for the whole region. Um, then things go on sale. Otherwise, real estate's very, very seldom goes on sale. And you could wait around your whole lifetime to buy that house for you know, a 10% yield, you would never get it. So the beauty of the stock market is that something's on sale all the time, right? Because of the fluctuations of the market from one industry to another. So that's how we'd value that house at 70,000 bucks. This is how we value that business at $80 a share. And they're the same. They're the same basic idea on how you put in a value. So you got any questions about that? Because that's pretty straight up. I actually don't. All right, that's beautiful. I, I know. I'm, I'm flat. I would love to like poke a million holes in what you're saying, but it makes sense to me. It's really, really good, and it's really simple, and it's a really good way to value a business. And um, I will tell you, if you can buy businesses with 10% free cash flow yield, and they're a good business, they're a wonderful business. By the other criteria that we have, you should just go ahead and buy that sucker because that's a really that's a good price. 
mean, I'll say the obvious thing, which is if it's really that easy, there would not be entire companies devoted to figuring out valuations, nor would be there be a million books written about how to value companies. So I will say it's very simple. I like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't have enough perspective or information to know if it's too simple. It's That's not too simple. What it does is it produces a value of the business that's low enough that you're not going to see it very often. (laughs) (laughs) So you created a unicorn method of valuation for us. You have to be patient for this thing and you have to know what you're looking at. So you always with a business that's harder than real estate is you have to know what you're looking at. You have to understand, is it a durable competitive advantage? Do they have that moat? Um, that is going to protect this business long term so that I can make a value on a value judgment on it. And then if they do have that um, and if I can buy it for a 10 percent yield on free cash flow, then, man, that's a pretty good deal. It's it'd be hard to go wrong if you indeed found a wonderful business at that price. That's awesome. I'm into it. Now, are there other like you said something about continuing? So, yes, indeed. Other, so this is our methods, since we spent so much time talking about the growth rates and the margin of safety numbers <laughs> stuff. Now, what I did is I produced something here that's really a margin of safety price. This is the value of this real estate to most investors would be higher than that. People buy real estate with a six percent yield all the time. So let's take that deal. Yeah, let's take that same $7,000 and use a 6% yield. And what we'd end up with is a new uh, price on the business of about, oh, $160,000. No, sorry, $116,000. So this would be, again, our $8 of free cash flow per share divided by 0.06. Yeah. So if we were looking at a business at that was producing eight dollars and we divided that by 06, then we would have a price per share of about one hundred and thirty dollars a share. Very different. Very different than that. More than or almost double. Yeah, exactly. So we can see that um, that when people are buying real estate, they're willing to pay a lot more. Uh, and take a 6% yield because we're in an environment now where a bond, 30-year, a 10-year treasury note is 2%. So if you can get 6% on real estate, that's probably a pretty fed, fabulous deal, and you're going to do that deal. Trying to find real estate at 10% would require a lot of digging. It's still available, but it'd require a lot of digging. And that's what we demand of our investors. That's investing. When you when you buy and you're paying up on real estate, you're speculating that it's going to go up. Unless, of course, you're happy with a 6% yield, which many people would be. But when you're buying it for 10%, you don't have to speculate if it's going to go up. It doesn't have to go up. You're going to be sitting there with 10% the rest of your life. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Okay, so let's leave that and and let's come back on the next uh, podcast and let's dive into the next kind of valuation we're going to do, which we're going to call the margin of safety calculation. Got it. I knew we were talking about that for a while, and I was wondering when we were going to come back to it. Okay, so we'll come back to margin of safety next time. Okay, until then, I guess it's time to go play. See ya. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop. 
for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.